And Lord, we thank you so much for the time we have tonight to uh, just study the Bible together and pray one with another. Lord, I pray that you just help us to be a profitable time, help us to honor and glorify you with it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Go ahead and find your places there. Revelation chapter number 6. Revelation chapter 6 tonight. All right, so as we dive back in, I just want to um, mention a couple of things. First of all, you'll notice um, here the theme tonight, our key concept is that it's the overview, overview of the last days. So studying the book of Revelation, obviously we're looking at the things that are yet to come. And so what I want to do tonight is take a little bit of time to compare Revelation chapter number 6 with several other key passages in the... Old Testament and New Testament. So I want to compare Revelation chapter 6 with, as I mentioned, several other key passages, which kind of give, uh, Revelation chapter 6 is one of those chapters that really, it doesn't get too deep into the details, but it gives us an overall perspective. So that's what I want to do tonight for a few minutes. So previously in the book of Revelation, let's kind of back up and think of where we've come from and where we're at. So previously, if you remember, we began in chapter 1 with the lampstands, and we looked at all the churches in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. And then as we transitioned to chapter number 4, we talked about the things which must come to pass. Do you remember that? So we looked at the things which are, the things which were, and then the, the rest of the book of Revelation focusing on the things which must come to pass. And so that brought us into chapter number 5 as John the Apostle is transported into the heavenly throne room. And we took a week looking at the glory and splendor of the throne room of God. And then there's the book. And we're introduced to this scroll and the, the book and that big question. What was the question as they looked at the book and everybody around in that grand throne room of heaven? What was the question that they asked as they saw the book? It was? There you go. Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Who is worthy? And we know it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes and he appears. And he is described as, well, his, he's given the title, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But his appearance isn't the appearance of a lion. It's the appearance of a, of a lamb. And it says that he's the one that's worthy. Only he. In fact, if you look back in chapter number 5, look at verse number 12. There's millions that are crying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor. And so he is given the book. Now, we talked about the book as being the title deed, if you will, the right of kingdom power, the right of authority, that all the kingdoms of the world would now be ultimately once and for all delivered into the hand of their rightful king and lord. Jesus Christ. So all the anticipation of the ages, all the anticipation of the human story just comes to this moment yet in future history. I say future history because it's the end is written from the beginning. So yet to be accomplished in future history, Jesus receives this, receives this, this scroll, this book, and now he prepares to open the book. And as he opens the book, we see the unfolding of the end of the world as we know it and the beginning 
of the new creation, the end of the old world, the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. So it says in verse number one, as we read through Revelation 6, let's follow along together. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat, up, sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So we've got how many seals open now? Great, I'll ask you to participate with me tonight. We'll stay, involved, stay engaged. This is seal number, and it's symbolized with a... Whoop, whoop, look again. Go ahead, what is it, Amy? A white horse. Seal number one, symbolized with a white horse. Now we come, verse number three. And when he, when he had opened the... Yeah, there we go. The second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse. But this isn't a white horse, this is a... Red horse. So seal number one is the, seal number two is the, the red horse. There, w- there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. So the first one is a conqueror. The second one is taking peace, taking peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. So we've got two, white horse and a red horse. Now verse number five. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the beast say, come and see, and behold, and lo, a black horse. So seal number one is the white horse. Seal number two is the red horse. Seal number three is the black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. So what you'll notice with the, un, with the opening of the seals you'll see a progressive gloominess. You'll see a progressive sense of doom and tribulation. Three seals. Now, verse number seven. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked and behold, pale horse. So seal number one, white horse. Seal number two, seal number three, and then number four, pale horse. And I looked and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death with the beasts of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. These are the martyrs and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So the first four seals are four horses. The fifth seal is the martyr's seal. The judgment is not yet, but... There's a judgment for those who persecuted the martyrs. And now verse number 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. And lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. Now, 
There are some people that will try to interpret the book of Revelation as have already having been accomplished. Right? We talked about that early on in our study. Do you see why these this passage may cause trouble for those who would try to interpret Revelation as being already accomplished? What trouble would it cause? For, what, why? Why is the sixth seal particularly difficult for those that would... Now, I know it's hard to think this way because you're like, well, Ethan, we don't believe that. We believe that the book of Revelation is future. It's not accomplished. But sometimes to, to help us bolster confidence in our position, it's helpful to understand and, and to confront other views as well. You'll notice I'll do that a lot. I like to bring up opposing views because if you can, if you can encounter opposing views, then you're going to be stronger in what you understand and what you believe. So if somebody were to come and were to say, well, you know, I, and maybe they're a good, well-meaning Christian, and they were to say, well, I really think the idea is that, you know, Revelation is very figurative. Everything's kind of already been accomplished in the first century, um, and, and so this is not yet to come. Why might this sixth seal uh, become a little bit of a problem for them? Does anybody, like, are you under, am I framing this well, or am I, am I not framing this right? Like, for instance, all of these other ones, a red horse, a black horse, white horse, somebody, they're not very specific, right? Like, you could look at any, you could look at a world leader and say, well, that person, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Nero was the rider on this horse, or maybe, in Mo- maybe it was a, a Roman emperor, or a world kingdom, or something like that. But the problem is this, when you get to the sixth seal... These are very cataclysmic events, right? These are, not, these are not events that could be explained. Oh, yeah, there was a big thunderstorm around this time, and that kind of explains this. Look what it says. It says that in verse 14, the heaven departed as a scroll rolled together. Every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, captains, the mighty men, every bondman, every free man hid themselves in dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? It's pointing to an ultimate and a level of intensity and judgment that really can't be explained by anything that the world has ever experienced before. Now, as you study the book of Revelation, the chronology gets really difficult. If you've, studied, if you've studied Revelation before, there are lots of different ways to look at the chronology, the happenings, because you know there's going, to be, there's going to be, we've seen seals, but then there's also going to be trumpets, and there's going to be bowls, and there's going to be a whole sequencing of events. Now, you can study this in a little more depth, but I would, I'm going to submit to you this evening that when you see Revelation chapter 6, what you're getting is almost a a bird's eye view, well, a heaven's view of the book of Revelation unfolding. It's almost in some ways like a table of contents for what is yet to come. It prevents an overview leading up to the ultimate destruction. And it's referred to at the end of verse 17, look at verse, or the end of the chapter, look at verse 17. This all is referred to, the people that are running and they're hiding and they're in fear, they're referring to this as what? In verse number, number, number 17. They're referring to it as what? The great day of his wrath is come, 
and who shall be able to stand. If you like to mark things in your Bible, I would mark that the great day of his wrath. And that is what throughout the scripture would be referred to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And that is a theme that you find all throughout the scriptures. And there's a seventh seal as well. Uh, That's not until chapter number eight. So what we're going to do with the rest of the time that we have is rather than look in detail at each of the seals, I want to do that comparison to understand this idea of the overview, what we're referring to as the great day of the Lord. Okay, and next week we'll come back and look at the seals individually. So there are other passages of Scripture, three in particular that I'd like to discuss with you tonight. One is in Daniel, the other is in Matthew, and the third is in 2 Thessalonians. And so all three of these passages, what they do is they have correlations to Revelation 6 in that they outline the last days. So journey back with me to Daniel chapter number 9. Daniel 9. Now it would help you out if you had a pen pencil and a piece of paper and you could jot a few things down because that will we're going to mention a lot of things here and so taking a few notes will be helpful it'll keep you engaged this is the kind of lesson where if you lose me now you're probably not going to find your way back so if you lose me in five minutes then i don't know you can take a nap for the rest of time that would be okay i won't get offended by that but so just stick with me as we go through this So Daniel chapter 9. I guess I had better find my place there. So remember, if you were in the first century reading the book of Revelation, you would have a solid understanding of the prophecies of Daniel. You would have known this. You would have learned these passages growing up in synagogue. These are messianic prophecies. They, they, would have been, they would have been some of the most popular uh, teachings of the day. So in Daniel chapter 9, there's a lot that's happening. The children of Israel are in captivity in Babylon, and uh, there's prophecy that they're going to make it back, and Israel is going to be reestablished. And so here in Daniel chapter 9, um, I'd like you to pick it up in verse number 24. There's, there's more context, and just to give you an idea, there's, there's been a, a vision that Daniel has seen, but really we get to the heart of the prophecy that Daniel sees in chapter number 9, verse 24. So here comes the vision that's given to Daniel. Seventy weeks, mark, write it down, you can write the number 70 down if you'd like, or underline it. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city, upon thy people and upon thy holy city. So we've got a few key concepts here. First is 70 weeks. Then we have thy people and upon thy holy city. Can anyone tell me who are the people? Who are Daniel's people or the gods or God's people? Who would this be? The Jews. This is Israel as a, as a nation. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. So this period of time of 70 weeks, who does it pertain to? It pertains to Israel, the Jews. And 
not just a people, but a location. The location is what? Jerusalem, exactly, the holy city. So, 70 weeks regarding who? And where? Jerusalem. Now, in the book of Revelation, much of what is going to take place is going to center on the nation of Israel, not the Gentiles, but the nation of Israel, and it's going to, the focal point is going to be the city of Jerusalem. Now, 70 weeks are determined to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, Jewish people up until Christ, they were focused not so much on the everlasting righteousness, but they were focused primarily on what? Kingdom reestablishment, right? That's their focus. But there's more to this. There's going to be a reconciliation. There's going to be an end of sins. I mean, think about that. An end of sins, reconciliation for iniquity, everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. What would be the term for the anointed most holy one? What's the term we're familiar with? That's a good guess. That that is not it, though. It's Christ or Messiah. Jewish would be Messiah. Greek would be Christ. So this prophecy is all bringing us to the Messiah. But it's 70 weeks. That's interesting, right? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. They're in Babylon. King Cyrus is going to say, you can now go and rebuild your city, Jerusalem. Right? That happened. From that time until the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and three score in two weeks. How many is that? Seven weeks, three score and two. Three score is 60, 62 plus seven comes out to 69. So we have 70, and then what's the next number? 69, we're missing, we're missing one. This is the math, this is the math week, okay? We're missing one week. Now, we know that this can't be referring to weeks of days, right? Because it just does it, it just wouldn't have happened. Like it, this would have happened in a couple of months here, and none of this took place. So it's been best to understand that we're not talking about weeks of days, but rather it's referring to weeks of years. So so weeks of years. So understanding that the a that there are so one week would equal how many years? If it's a week of years, seven years. So the first would be this period of several hundred years that would be leading up. Now there are some scholars that have mapped this out and they've actually come up with some calculations that you could make a very strong case that the period of time that elapsed from what we know to be the decree to, to build Jerusalem and to the birth of Christ would equal that 69 weeks of years. I'll let you study that in more detail later. For now, you just have to, to mark that down. So, from the rebuilding of Jerusalem, from the order to go be to Jerusalem, to the birth of Christ is the 69 weeks. 
You tracking with me so far? Okay. Now, it says, verse 25, knowing uh, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem to the Messiah, the prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city of the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So now Messiah has been killed. He's been cut off. There's a desolation. In verse 27, the one who brings the desolation, he shall confirm the covenant with many for what? Here's our missing week. Here's the 70th week. He shall confirm the covenant for many with one week and in the midst of the week. So how many years? The middle of the, the middle of the week is what? I heard it. Three and a half. He shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, these prophecies were given in a bit of a haze, in a bit of darkness, in a bit of uncertainty. Jesus is then going to expound upon this even more. Paul is going to expound on it even more. Then we get to Revelation where it's fully unpacked. So what I believe we're seeing There's two possibilities. What you're seeing in Revelation chapter 6 is the unfolding either of the last three and a half years of this week or the full, I believe it's the full seven years of Daniel's 70th week is what you're getting an overall picture of in Revelation chapter number 6. Are you with me so far? We're good? Any questions on that? Okay. So we've been introduced to some interesting characters already. Messiah appears. Who else appears already? What's that? Well, Messiah the Prince, that's who it's who's being referred to there. But who else are we who else are we introduced to? Or what do we know? There's another character who does what? We wouldn't know the actual name of them yet, but what go ahead, I heard you say, John. The one who, who, he's a destroyer. He's somebody that comes and brings desolation to the temple. There's a temple, he desecrates the temple. Who is that later revealed to be in the New Testament? Do you know? Huh? Well, I don't think so. Right, this is the setup for the Antichrist, for understanding who the Antichrist is. So again, I'm giving you a very broad survey on this tonight. We could we could spend a week looking at Daniel, but the, not the point of our study. The, the point of the study is to whet your appetite. You can study in more, more in depth on your own. Yes? What verse are you in? Oh, so there's a new prince. Yes. 
So there's a, I'm sorry, I missed that. Yes, so the, the prince that shall come. So you have the Messiah, the prince, and then you have the anti-prince. Right, that's the idea. The, 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 the prince who comes, and now he's got people with him. So it's setting up the, the conflict, the, the forces of Christ and the forces of Antichrist. So now what's happened is this. 69 weeks with one week still unfulfilled. The 70th week is unfulfilled. What happened in between week 69 and week 70 that, was, that never appeared in the Old Testament? Something happened in the middle of, in, at the end of week 69, and in, this is the mystery that the New Testament talks about because this was hidden, but it's revealed through Christ and through his apostles. 69 weeks, and then there's this gap. And then there's the 70th week. Somebody tell me what happened between 69, between 69 and 70. Don't, I, I know you know it, right? Anybody else knows it? What? It's church. Or also referred to in the scripture as the times of the Gentiles. This was God's full plan, was to create his kingdom, not just a Jewish kingdom, but a kingdom of all people. But now, at the end of the church age, with the rapture of the church, Dan Daniel's 70th week is going to resume. It's going to pick up. And the characters that we see will be involved in it. It's also referred to as the day of the Lord. Now, everybody wonders about this. Forever, people have wondered, well, when will the end of the world be, right? It's nothing new. In fact, they asked Jesus. So go back to Matthew 24. Go forward now to Matthew 24. Matthew and verse number 24. Okay. So in Matthew 24, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to, for to show him the buildings of the temple. Look at this beautiful temple, Jesus. They're country boys from Galilee, and they're in Jerusalem, and they're just amazed at the architecture of this temple. And they say, Jesus, look at all this. And you talk about ruining the mood. Jesus says, well, let me tell you something about this temple. Do you see all this? Not one stone that won't be thrown down. This temple will be destroyed. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? Jesus, tell us. We know about what Daniel said, that there's going to be a desolation, and we've read about that, and now you're giving us a little more insight. Can you imagine the disciples that no rabbi has ever unfolded this kind of teaching to them? They'd heard it all growing up. They knew about the Daniel and all of that. But Jesus, what is the end going to be like? And Jesus says, well, first of all, don't let anyone deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must, what? Come to pass, but, what? The end is not yet. This is a very misinterpreted passage of Scripture, and it's plain as day. I had a professor in college. He said, when you're looking at the book of Revelation or any prophecy, be careful of date setting. 
we know that, right? Many, uh, many a, a well-intentioned movement has been sidetracked by a founder who said, Jesus Christ will return on this date at this year. It's been happening for a long time. So I think as Baptists, we understand that. Like something we know, don't set the date. You don't know the date. But he also, this, this professor also said this, and, I, and this stuck with me. He said, don't just beware of date setting, but beware of stage setting. And I think that's a good point too, because the stage has been set for the return of Christ since when? <laughs> since he ascended into heaven. The stage has been set. So what happens is people all around us say, well, it was uh, when I was in college 20 years ago, it was when the European Union was really coming in. And everybody said, look, it's the EU. It's the beginning. There it is. The, the stage is set. And before that, it was the United Nations. that The stage was set. And before that, there's a before, you know, a before, before. And then in the, um, how many of you, I don't know, some of you might be old enough to remember when people were all freaked out about credit cards. Who remembers that? Because, you know, there are Christian people that said, you know, the credit card, you know, buying and, listen, I'm all for understanding that, yes, the fact that, that all of these things are happening shows us clearly that it's no problem at all for the things in the end times to, to take place. I get that. But at the same time, it, it, it does not mean that the return of Christ is coming this year or in a thousand years. It's irrelevant to that because no man knows. And in fact, Jesus, have you ever heard somebody say, look at all these earthquakes and natural disasters. It must mean that Jesus is what? He's about to come. Jesus is, we should be looking for Jesus, not because of the events in the world, but because he said he was going to come. He said that his return was at hand. It's always been at hand. But we, we don't need the proofs of the quote-unquote signs of the times. And in fact, sometimes I think it makes Christians just look a little bit silly. Because we don't need all of these things to point to. We have the promise of Jesus Christ. He said, watch, look for me, wait for me. And he says right here in these verses we just read, he said, all these things must come to pass. What things? Well, look at verse 7. Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, diverse places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then persecution is going to happen. Verse 11, false prophets will rise up. The, verse 12, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And not only that, but the gospel will be preached in all the world to all nations. And what? Then shall the end come. And then shall the end come. So it's not that we look around at all these things. Now, now Jesus gets very specific. And in fact, the signs of the return of Christ are not signs for the rapture. They're signs for the day of the Lord and the final judgment. Because now he says in verse 15, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by who? Hey, we looked at that. Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Then 
Let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not seen since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, here's some, a passage that's similar to where we began in, in Revelation, right? Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together the, his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. Everything that we just read has nothing to do with the rapture. It has everything to do with the final judgment on the earth. Nothing to do with the rapture. So, so and it's centered, it's, he's, Jesus is telling you here, Jesus is telling you in this verse that he is referencing what other scripture? Daniel, which applies to whom? Who does Daniel's prophecy apply to? Does it apply to the church? It, it applies to Israel in Jerusalem. Jesus is expounding on that. You see, when Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, the church age has not begun yet. It begins with his, with his death and his resurrection and the day of Pentecost. He's speaking regarding Jerusalem. There, there they are at the temple. When is all this going to be fulfilled? Let me tell you. Revelation is now unfolding that. The timing of the rapture is a separate issue. The rapture of the church is not even discussed until the Apostle Paul explains it. Jesus nowhere in this passage indicates the rapture of the church. Could make an argument that he hints at it a little bit later on when it talks about two in the field, one is taken, the other left. That could be but it's not definitively. He's speaking about primarily here, the, the, the focus I believe has to be on the 70th week of Daniel. This is what Jesus referenced. He said it. He said, I'm talking about Daniel's prophecy. Any questions so far? Now we'll, come, we'll conclude with the rapture issue. But how many of you have heard this many times, all of this applying to the rapture? Yeah, Right? Most of us have. We grew up with that mind. It's just poor, poor, you know, careful exposition. It's just, it's not careful exposition. Scary movies. Yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. Now, that doesn't change the impact of the message, though, because all these things are going to happen. It's just a, a sloppy chronology. It's, a, it's, it's just a sloppy um, 
rightly dividing the Scriptures. This is referring to what all throughout the Old Testament is referred to as the great and terrible day of the Lord. It is what the people in Revelation in chapter 6 at the end say, the great day of his wrath is come. Everything that is prophesied has happened. And it's not until, I believe, the, toward the end of the saga of Revelation that people finally realize, oh my goodness, this is the day of the Lord. So, now the Apostle Paul helps us think about the rapture issue. He does this in First and Second Thessalonians. So first make a quick pit stop. We don't need to say a lot about this, but make a, first, a quick pit stop in First Thessalonians. I don't have that on your notes, but let's stop quickly in First Thessalonians. Yeah, so there's the day of, there's several terms. You'll find in the scriptures the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the day of wrath, and there might be a couple other. There are some Bible teachers that try to make a distinction between all of those days. They will try to say the day of, the Christ, the day of Christ is different than the day of the Lord, which is different than the day of wrath. I think I, I, I'm not comfortable with that. I think it's oh, it's it's overcomplicating what is what is a pretty straightforward message of the Bible. It's the same thing when you say the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. There's, there's a, a whole movement called hyper dispensationalism that tries to divide all of these things up. I think it's pretty straightforward that we're talking about the same events. It's the day of the day of the Lord. So, in um, I said to go 1 Thessalonians, right? So 1 Thessalonians, look at chapter number 4. Yeah, 13. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, a.k.a. dead, those who have died who are believers. Don't be so sorrowful, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent. We're not going to go before. That's that prevent means go before. We shall not go before those which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, what's he want them to do? Comfort one another. So the Thessalonians, they're all worried. Like, man, our friends, they've died, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. What's going to happen? And Paul says, oh, didn't you know there's going to be a resurrection? And not only is there going to be a resurrection, but there's going to be a great catching up. The ones who are alive are going to be caught up in the air. And they're like, whoa, we didn't know about that. Yeah, the Lord told us. There'll be a resurrection, and, and, and so they are comforted. But some time goes on, and they get worried some more. They're going through some real troubles and some real trials, and they're just really concerned. So now Paul has to write another letter to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We see this. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he referencing? Well, what did he just ref what what had he already written to them about in the first epistle? 
the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, guys, listen, you got to go back. And, and I want to beseech you, I beg you, listen to me. Because of the coming of the Lord Jesus and by, by our gathering together unto him, I don't want you to be shaken in your mind. Don't be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor as a, by letter from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. What is he saying? He's saying this. The church had thought that they were going through the day of the Lord. He told them that Jesus is going to return, but they're under the impression, well, he hasn't come yet and we're going through suffering. We must be going through this terrible time of wrath. And how does he respond? He's like, maybe I didn't explain it well enough the first time. I'm being facetious. You know that. Maybe I didn't explain it. Let me give you some more info about this. Let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself what? That he is God. Where else do we read about that? Daniel, we read about it in Daniel chapter 9. And then who else talked about this abomination of desolation? Jesus did in Matthew 24. So we're going all the way back to Daniel. All the prophecies tie together. They're all building on that. So what he says here is, the day of the Lord isn't coming until who comes on the scene? The Antichrist has to come on the scene first. What did Daniel say the Antichrist was going to do. He's going to destroy it, but before he does that, at what point does he do this, this abomination of desolation? At what point in the week does he do it? Middle. What, does, what is the first act of the Antichrist? And he shall confirm the covenant with many for, do you remember? One week. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. The very first thing that the Antichrist does is he establishes a, a worldwide peace treaty, a covenant that will last for how long? Seven years. He, he, his, the, the, the time of the Antichrist begins with the seven-year peace treaty. Correct. It begins with the signing of the seven-year peace treaty, which he breaks at what point? The midpoint, halfway, three and a half years. At which point there is what Daniel says, great tribulation such as the world has never seen. So the question is this. The question is this. Well, well verse 5, let me look at verse 5. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. The mystery of iniquity doth already work. In other words, the spirit of Antichrist is what? It's already here. John tells us about that in 1 John. 
Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. There's something holding the Antichrist back, but when that is removed, then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, so now the question ultimately, we know what's going to happen at the day of the Lord. There's going to be a final judgment. Three and a half years of peace, three and a half years of great tribulation, like the world has never seen. The question is, when does the rapture, when does the catching up of the church happen? Well, people have proposed three views. Some say it happens at the very end of the tribulation. Those who believe in a literal rapture, there are three views. Some say it happens at the end of the tribulation. In other words, it's not until the very end that the day of the Lord is about to happen. Jesus comes, he pulls the church out, and he annihilates the Antichrist and the forces of evil. And it's, that's called a post-tribulation view. The very end, that's when the day of the Lord is. Then there are those who say, no, it happens somewhere near the midpoint. They say that, well, and they take it from this passage, which says that he's not revealed until, he's not really revealed until he commits that abomination of desolation. So the church is removed right before. The third, and I always save the best for last, is the pre-tribulation view, that everything all of the events that we read about in Revelation, all the events of Daniel's 70th week, all of that is, encompasses the day of the Lord as a, as a major event. And it is the church is removed. For instance, Paul's motivation, one of the evidences for that is Paul's motivation in writing this, he wants to give them confidence. He wants to give them assurance. He wants to get, he says, listen, I don't want you to all be freaked out that you're, he didn't say it quite like that, but I don't want you all to be in a panic. This has happened to you. Listen, that, that man of sin is going to come first before any of that happens. And you're not, you're not going to experience the day of Christ. I beseech you by the coming of the Lord. Remember the coming of the Lord that I told you about back in the first letter? That's going to happen to prevent you from having to deal with this man of sin this wicked one. And there's other evidences for that, but I just, again, I'm giving you the, the overall picture. Also, you see in um, the book of Revelation, chapter 6, from chapter 5 on, you see no mention of the church, but the turning again of the attention to the nation of Israel. So, you put all of this together, and there's a great thread throughout the scriptures that points to the coming of the day of the Lord. Paul tells us that as a church, be comforted. You're not going to experience that. You're not going to be a part of that. Any questions on what we've covered here this evening? Questions, comments, anything at all? It's a lot there, right? We unpacked a ton tonight. So I appreciate you staying there with us. We're going to come back to Revelation chapter 6 next week and look at it in more detail. It'd be a good opportunity at the beginning of the lesson next week if you have any questions, if we want to look at anything that from tonight. And I know we had a good group online tonight watching as well. If you want to, and if you can be here in person or you can't, if you've got a question, just send a question in 
email me a question, message a question, whatever you got. We can begin next week. We can deal with anything unfinished, and then we can move on and look a little bit more carefully at the at the opening of the seals. Yes, John. Yeah. Right. Sure. That's a good point. And there's, there's also, I think there's two things. There's some people that, that look at the scriptures and there is, there, there's a sinister motive behind it. There's a, there's a false spirit that is twisting and distorting. But there's also just, there's a lot of well-meaning people that I believe overcomplicate and simply misunderstand. And so we don't want to forget that also. Not everything, not every disagreement rises to the level of, you know, satanic attack on the scriptures. These are complicated things, right? Like this is not, you know, Roman numeral one, this will happen, then this will happen. There's, there's a bit of complexity to it. So I think the best thing we can do is have a humble approach and come away and, and try to look at it as simply and straightforward as, as we can. And again, comparing scripture with scripture, that's the most important thing that we do, is if Jesus is quoting Daniel, if, if Daniel is referenced in Paul's writings too, we'd better make sure we go back and understand what Daniel said, right? So that harmony of the scriptures becomes really important. Okay? You look like you got something to share or no? Okay. All right. Excellent. Well, that's, that's it for tonight. Let's have a word of prayer together. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've had, and we pray that uh, you'd help us to just be hungry students of your word, to grow, and we pray that uh, you'd help us to look up and be looking forward to your return and to be busy growing and evangelizing and, uh, Lord, making a difference in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.